bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be alive with the ability to breathe, with the ability to see, and the ability to hear your word. Help us not take these gifts for granted, Father. And we thank you for whatever health we do have, as there's always someone worse off than us. Father, we ask that you bless our congregation, bless uh, those that are sick and have physical and mental battles they're dealing with. We ask that you uh, touch them and show them your hand in their lives. Father, also, we pray for our families, uh, those that are without the truth. We ask that you open up doors for them to see the light of the gospel of your salvation. Father, we're most of all thankful for your sending your son for us to become one of us, to be judged in our place so that whoever has a repentant, humble faith in him is going to be saved forever and ever by your grace and your power and your mercy. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that you guide us and teach us this evening by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your spirit and your word so that we can know the truth that sets us free. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. What is repentance and who gets to define it? Part 11. Sunday's message to me was just really wonderful. Um, I was overwhelmed by it by the end of the lesson, and I hope you consider watching it again on the website, uh, whether it be at home or while you're taking a walk or at the gym or whatever. But it's so easy now to listen or watch the lesson in so many different ways. And, uh, you, you know, if, if you're honest and if you're humble, every time you listen to a message again, you hear things that you just didn't even hear the first time at all. There's just too much to take in. So let that be your spirit's nudge to you, um, and hopefully you'll get more out of it the second time. But the truth is meant to set us free, and the Spirit brought a lot of wonderful things together on Sunday. I'm going to do my best to review today and certainly can't review all of it, and some things that you just can't even explain or aren't even worth trying to say again. So let's turn to Matthew 7:24 and start in that passage, which we started with on Sunday, actually. Matthew seven twenty four. Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So first of all, you know, he says whoever acts on them is going to be wise. Just to borrow from recent analogies, whoever turns from his own ways and jumps in the Father's arms, or whoever hands Jesus the keys to the car, that's someone that acts on his words. Uh, and they may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
who is Jesus Christ. In verse 25, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock, Jesus Christ. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. So here again is man's free will in play. Will he hold on to his own will or surrender to God's will for his life? Man must be willing to jump in the Father's arms. But who's the one that picks him up? God the Father. If a man, in pastor's analogy, if the little boy wants to see the parade in his father's arms, the little boy doesn't have the power to get up there. The father picks him up. So again, it's not about our own power in any way, but a willingness must be present. Verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. On the board, regarding great was its fall, no structure ever erected by mankind will ever stand the test of time. Only God's gracious plan is able to save man. The plans of the so-called rich and the wise will all crumble. And these are plans that are based on clinging to self. When the rich rely on their riches or the wise rely on their own human wisdom, they're just relying on self, self self-justification and self-righteousness. And this is why Jesus said you have to deny yourself if you want to, you know, come to me, if you want to follow me. Because it's one or the other. Either you choose to remain relying on self, self-justification, self-righteousness, however you want to define it, or you choose to say, I'm not good enough, or that's not good enough, or I'm insufficient, and I need you, Lord, your righteousness, your justification. And these are the things we need to share with people. Otherwise, great will be the fall. On the board in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The fallen house is what happens when man stubbornly continues to rely on self and refuses to humbly turn to Christ. His destiny is an eternal judgment by his own choice to remain in his own will. As we've been learning, without a willingness to repent towards God, God won't do anything for their salvation. He'll even, you know, block up their ears. You know, even if they, even though they have ears, they won't be able to hear. Does God want every man to be saved? Yeah. But he's not going to give them something they're not willing to receive. Cast his pearls before swine. And this is why Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. As we heard on Sunday, unless someone repents in their heart towards God, they can't go any further. 
It's like a stubborn child. It's like pastor's analogy, the child that refused to take the father's help to look over the fence. All right. I, don't, I, I can't go any further. I want to pick you up, but I'm going to honor your free will. So they're stuck if they don't repent or they're not willing to repent. And yet God will graciously help them if they are just willing. He'll do all the heavy lifting, so to speak. Now, if someone's already repentant about their sin towards God, wonderful. But if they remain arrogant, that nothing is wrong with them or their life without God, they can't go on to faith in Christ unless they're willing to repent and have a true change of mind. Why is that? Simply because their heart isn't ready and willing. The very purpose, by the way, for John the Baptist's whole ministry. When you think about it, when you start looking at the Word of God as a, as a, as a big picture and a whole timeline, and how everything has you know, its place and its reason, not just being so myopic here in the church age and, you know, it's after the resurrection and all that stuff. When you look at the big picture, look at John the Baptist's ministry. The Lord placed a whole ministry called to repentance before he came on the scene. Why did he do that? Unless it was so important and helpful to men's hearts to be ready to receive the Savior. Repentance must have been vital. He gave a whole ministry for just that thing before Jesus came on the scene. Wasn't Jesus like, you know, good enough, able enough to bring people to salvation? Of course, right? The problem is man, the stubbornness of man's heart. And God in his grace and mercy said, I'm going to soften you up first. You need to be softened up first. I'm going to send this guy eating locusts and honey and wearing camel hair, screaming in the wilderness, so that you might pay attention and soften up your heart a little bit. So that when I come, you will receive me, at least some of you. But how important is repentance when you look at that big picture? As the Spirit's been making clear to us, repentance is a vital part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just go back to basics. Just think about this. Why would someone turn to the Savior unless he honestly thinks he needs saving from his sin? It's really that simple. Why repentance is needed. And repentance is totally a work of God in man if he's willing to receive it. So on Sunday we saw a few more quotes from Spurgeon on repentance. On the board, Charles Spurgeon, a sinner can no more repent and believe without the Holy Spirit's aid than he can create a world. Nice impossible analogy there. Without the Spirit's aid, it's impossible for man to repent and believe even. Another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of, and his conversion is a fiction. Well, tell us what you really think, Charles. But that's the honest truth. Are pastors supposed to tiptoe around and uh, 
take for granted that everyone in the building, for example, is saved? Or should a pastor tell it like it is, as Jesus told how it is, and challenge people to examine their own lives? Not judge people or call, you know, make a call on their salvation. To look at your own life and say, this is what the Bible says in the big picture, if you read it. Think of the phrase born again and think of the word conversion. These are radical concepts. It's not just a superficial adding of something to one's life on the side. So on the board, we're talking about a heavenly change. Salvation is radical and totally a miracle of God, truly changing a person from the inside out. That's what happens when someone's born again. God changes them from the inside out. He changes their heart. He changes their perspective. They want to live differently, even if they're not able. They have a new desire in them to do the things of God. Even though we sin every day, their heart is changed. Their desire is changed. Again, salvation is radical and totally a miracle of God, truly changing a person from the inside out. A friend recently told me of someone that they know who just turned to Christ. And the words they used were, he's a new man. Not talking theologically, like the Bible says you'll be a new man when you believe, right? when you surrender. He wasn't talking about that. He was saying, I don't know any other way to say it. He's just a new man. And this was someone that this person thought would never turn to Christ. He's just changed. It's evident. It's beautiful. It's God's work in a man. And it's radical. So there's no other way to say it describing one who is truly born again and saved. It means someone has been truly changed and made new by God himself. And that demands a good result in the new believer's life from the only one who is truly good. Spurgeon goes on to say, Learn this lesson, not to trust Christ because you repent, but trust Christ to make you repent. Not to come to Christ because you have a broken heart, but to come to him that he may give you a broken heart. Not to come to him because you're fit to come, but to come to him because you're unfit to come. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. That's a perspective to ponder, really. Who did the Lord come to seek and save? The lost, right? Until a person honestly admits they're lost, odds are they won't receive his salvation. So, you know, in other words, what Spurgeon is saying, are you going to God for your own benefit or for your own gain to add to your portfolio? Or are you going to God with a surrendered heart? beating your breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Two different things. So even though man is personally accountable to God, he must rely solely on God's grace to save him. Admitting he's totally unable, totally unworthy. Self isn't good enough. 
My self-righteousness stinks, Lord. My self-justification has been a lie. This, this is the, the realization that God will show the humble man, and he must be willing to turn from that. In other words, to go to God with empty hands. Until a man is willing to admit he's unfit for the kingdom of God, God can't do anything for him. He's stuck relying on self. Man must come to realize God helped him while he was still helpless even. He's been there the whole time, in other words. You'll hear people talk about maybe finally coming to God or finally coming to Christ. And they say, looking back on it now, that whole time I thought he wasn't with me and he, and he was there in different forms, in different ways. Just didn't see it. I wasn't willing to see it yet. But God comes for the helpless and helps the helpless. On the board in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God's grace is all sufficient, certainly enough to quicken a totally depraved person to repentant faith. Nothing lacking. All God. Let's one more time visit a wonderful passage that just lays out salvation through the words of our Lord and Savior on the following topics. And it really just shows the simplicity of the gospel. Turn again in your Bibles to Luke 18.9. We're going to give this one more read-through. I know we've been there, but the Spirit kind of said, this is beautiful. Just read through this again and see the simplicity. Every time you read a passage, you see something new. If you're humble, God wants us to see the simplicity of salvation, the simplicity of the gospel, and that it includes things like repentance. That's not like a hindrance to its simplicity. That's part of its simplicity. Like a child, you know, apologizing to a parent. It's part of the simplicity of the gospel. So again, what we're going to see on the board is conversion, simplicity in the faith of a child, <laughs> Possible rejection, refusing to deny self, to accept God's help, and then God's grace and salvation. So Luke 18, 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What do we see there? Self-righteousness. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's a huge stumbling block. How is someone going to believe in Christ if they think they're righteous on their own? So that's why, again, the command to deny self and follow me. Again, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Stop right there for a minute. What does Romans 2 say in the beginning of Romans 2? Don't go there, but it says, you who practice, uh, you who judge those people practice the same things. 
You thought you were right. You thought you're not like one of them. And by the way, it just takes a little self-examination to prove that you practice the same things. And Jesus said, if you think it, you've done it. Who's innocent? But this guy, unfortunately, is arrogant. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him, so they would, that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Hint, hint. That's not in there, but you know what I mean. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. But Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So again, our guide on the board is about the simplicity of the gospel. We see a lot in that passage, including turning from self or a willingness to turn from self to receive the kingdom, to receive something much better. We see conversion, simplicity of faith, rejection, refusing to deny self, and we see God's grace saving and salvation in the kingdom of God. And it's at this point on Sunday, I believe Pastor mentioned common sense for lack of a better phrase. One of the things the Lord did, which is just so awesome, is that he plainly stated things. Even throughout the Gospels, when you might be confused on a passage or a parable, he still plainly stated things, so that even a child, if humble, could understand them. And no one understands it all the first time and all that, but the Spirit will give you what you need and what you can, what you can bite and chew and swallow 
at that time. But he wasn't complicated in his teachings. He plainly stated so much. And I was thinking on Sunday, one of the things he used a lot in a lot of his teachings was the father-son relationship. And Pastor brought up common sense. That's what I thought of. Such as the father-son relationship. The Lord used this to illustrate simple things that any family member on earth can understand because of life itself and how we live together as families, for example. Who can't understand the father-son relationships and the dynamics of both sides of that? Pretty much everyone can. Even if you didn't have a quote-unquote good father growing up, you, you can see from other families on earth, okay, other examples in your life. You can watch Leave it to Beaver and say, ah, okay, there's a good father. You know, I, seriously, who can't understand the father-son relationship? So Jesus said, I'm going to use this a few times. And salvation is really this simple. The gospel is really this simple. Your relationship with God is designed to be this simple. He wasn't complicating it. This is part of the precious, plainly stated teachings found in Holy Scripture that we aren't to complicate either. Who did Jesus come for? He came for the poor. He came for the meek. And he came for the uneducated. Never forget that. So if that's true, and it's true according to his life and who he called, right? If that's true, shouldn't we stick to his intent for his word? That his intention for his word was to be simple, was to be easy to understand, and even easy or simple to obey. Let's not use the word easy. We'll get to that in a minute. But simple. Simple to understand and simple to obey for the humble person. And we are to accept his teachings with the faith of a child and rest on them, not add to them. Again, on the board in Luke 18, 17, he said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. You hear that, Pharisees? Do you hear that, those that think you're intelligent? Do you hear that, those that want to be a theologian for the wrong reasons? To complicate my word, to edify yourself above others? Do you hear that all religious people that want to gain knowledge for the sake of appearance or position or self-elevation? If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're not going to enter it at all. That's hardcore truth. That's the, the hard reality. And that's why a lot of religious people won't be in heaven, won't be saved. This is the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And it starts with accepting his words at face value. On Sunday, the Spirit also gave us a list of things Jesus was not trying to convey to us in this passage in Luke 18, 9 through 30. Jesus was not preaching a different gospel than Paul's. Jesus was not saying that simple means void of repentance. 
Jesus was not preaching anything fundamental beyond salvation proper. In other words, these things were all related to salvation and the gospel. That's why he came. That's what he preached about. Jesus was not preaching works for salvation. Contemporary Christianity likes to twist these words to their own liking in many cases. And they're in contradiction to the simple declaration of our Lord on the board. Another example in Luke 18, 14. I tell you, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Period. Simple. You're not going to enter the kingdom unless you receive it like a child. All geared towards simplicity. All pointing towards simplicity. You better stop complicating it. You better stop adding to my gospel. This is it, plainly stated. And then one of our favorite passages lately, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It just is. Jesus spoke plainly, and he's speaking of simple things, including the simplicity of the gospel. And that includes repentance. Why? Guess what? It's simple to apologize to someone when you did something wrong to them. It's super simple. But no, we have to add a doctrine to it and say it's a work or say it's adding to faith when it's the very other side of faith itself. It's a relationship with a father and a son. As the Spirit brought out recently, it is so simple, yet it is not necessarily easy for man. And I hope you understand what Pastor was saying about that, what the Spirit was bringing out with that. Because at first I didn't, you know, fully get it, so to speak. But why is it so simple? And it truly is so simple and yet not easy for man. What's the difference? Well, first of all, the reason is man's arrogance and stubbornness. That's the only reason it's not easy for man. His willingness to repent or his unwillingness to repent or hear. That's the only reason it's not easy. So something can be simple or let's say understandable, but not easy to do or follow through on. So an example of this I thought about as I was reviewing. I was going to give you a corny one, but I crossed that one out. And I said, let's stick with one that we already know and that relates to the gospel. In Pastor's Boat Analogy booklet on salvation, which is on the website, hopefully you all have read that at least once, but in that boat analogy, If a man is willing to jump from the roof of his flooded home into the boat Jesus has brought to save him, he'll be saved. Does it get any simpler than that? Of course not. Anyone can understand that. If you are willing to, you know, jump off your house into this very secure boat, you'll be saved from this flood. Extremely simple, but not necessarily easy for man because he's not willing to leave his possessions behind, even though they're going to bring him death. Remember the passage we started with in Matthew 7? When the floods came, the house on the sand fell, and great was its fall. So it's simple, but
but it's not easy because only because of man's own stubbornness. The gospel is very simple and very pure. It's not easy for man because he has to be willing to leave self behind to accept the free gift of God. It's that simple. And it's an unrepentant heart that gets in the way. It's arrogance that gets in the way. And who's the father of arrogance? Satan. Who's nudging man to stay arrogant, to keep relying on self? Because darn it, you're good looking. You're smart. Smarter than most. And you know what? You've got more money than most now that I think about it. And you know what? People respect you. That's what Satan says to man. Whatever he's got going on, whatever he thinks he's got going on, he doesn't even have it going on, right? Satan's like, yeah, you got it going on. Keep relying on yourself. You're not like those people, the swindlers, the tax collectors, you know those? Thank God he didn't make you like them. Even Satan says that. Thank God. Look up. Thank God that he didn't make you like them. Mm. Just keep feeding that arrogance. So man won't be willing to turn, to be saved, to jump off his roof. The water's up to the gutters in the house, right? You're in a flood, the water's up to the gutters in the house. You're standing on the roof, and you're still unwilling? How much pride is involved there? But that's the deception of arrogance. So hopefully in our, in our walk, in our gospel walk, we have a chance to dispel that myth that these people are standing on. But God will give us the opportunities. So yet again, the good news also that came up on Sunday is that God is patient with the spiritually deaf. Go again to Romans 2, verse 4. God is patient with the spiritually deaf. Romans 2, 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Some people think lightly of God's patience. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The unbeliever's endgame right there. God is so patient. As man is so arrogant, God is so patient and so willing to wait and wait and wait. Where we would have, you know, we would have crushed people by then for the things that they do to God if they did them to us. So a refusal of a man to repent means a man isn't saved. And notice in verse 5, this is a heart issue, folks. An unrepentant heart is mentioned. This is a heart issue. This is not a mental ascent in any way. And man can't have it both ways, continuing to rely on self and be born again by the hand of God. Man can't have it both ways. Just think about that. To continue to rely on self and be born again? 
Then on Sunday, we talked about perverted definitions. And pastors convinced this is a big reason for division in the church as a whole. And repentance is one thing that Satan has used to divide believers. Just give people a different perverted or accommodating definition to keep things comfortable for everybody. That's our society, isn't it, right now? The politically correct society we live in? I mean, it's gone, it's accelerated exponentially in just the last five or ten years. Just make sure everyone stays comfortable. And churches, and this is the problem, churches are appeasing the world. Churches are trying to fit into the world instead of preaching the truth. Churches are giving the false view that challenging someone's heart is bad. Churches believe that false view, that challenging someone's heart is bad. If, if, where else are you going to hear your heart be challenged other than in a church? That's where it should be challenged, right? You're nothing. God is everything. Do you realize your situation here? The world's not going to tell you that. The world's going to keep saying, good job. You're awesome. As one of the pastors quoted last week said, churches will often speak of repentance as an invitation so they can be polite. Repentance is not an invitation. It's a demand. But it's an invitation. Not a call to turn away from sin and self as Jesus spoke of. But today people love perverted, soft definitions so no one will be offended or feel bad. When Jesus himself said so many challenging things, it would be difficult to count. The more you read the Gospels, the more you see Jesus challenge people so directly it was uncomfortable, so directly they got angry and wanted to push him off the cliff. That's how direct he was. Why, listen, if Jesus came to save them, why was he being so direct and harsh? Unless it was needed. Because they wouldn't turn to him unless they accepted the harsh reality. For example, their sin before God. Why did our Lord do that? Because he loves people. He loves them. And he knew it was necessary for, for people to come to repentance and true conversion. But back to perverted, soft definitions. This is what unknowingly happens in the souls of even believers who don't receive plainly stated doctrine from the Scriptures. They're swayed away from the truth by coming up with their own perversions, and then it snowballs out of control. It starts with a small perversion of a definition. It starts with softening Jesus' words. And then, before you know it, five years later, ten years later, the church is out of control, down a hill like a snowball, can't, can't be stopped, and it's bigger than ever. The perversion is bigger than ever. And you, people say, how did it get that way? It started with one little lie, one little compromise, one little, you know, 
changing a definition to make people comfortable. And then boom, you know what you get at the end? And this is what's so shocking to, to me, I can speak for myself, what's going on in our society. Right now, this is it. I don't know how much worse it's going to get than this, but we are opposites. People in the world are, are now literally calling good things evil and evil things good. I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. 10, 20 years ago, it wasn't nearly like this. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're not talking about something that tastes a little bitter. We're talking about someone tasting something that is horrific. And they say, hmm, that's pretty sweet. That's some candy. Can I have some more? That's what's going on in our society. For so many things that are ungodly. How do we get here? Can you even blame the people? Well, there's volition involved, but there's also deception. Who deceived them? The devil, for sure. Who else deceived them? Some churches who wanted to compromise with the world so the world could be included. And they create a broad way to destruction. Again, one of the easiest, most insidious ways that Satan trips us up is with perverted definitions. A perfect example is with repentance. If you cling to a hack version of it, your salvation is at stake. And we were reminded by the Spirit, for some reason, back to our original lessons in this series on attrition versus contrition. True repentance is an act of contrition, not attrition. Contrition is from contrite, the Latin to be worn out or ground to pieces. Versus attrition, which means an abrasion, scraping, to rub one thing against another. And we saw all those scriptures. And we concluded that true repentance involves the whole man. Mind, heart, and will. There are many Christians out there that reject this. Even though the whole of scripture spells this out for us. Not one or two verses. The whole of scripture, as you read in context, if you're honest, this is the ongoing message, the ongoing pattern of what repentance really is, involving the whole man, not just a mental ascent, for example. Some people will say, okay, I admit I'm a sinner, but there's no willingness to turn away from wickedness. There's no sense of sorrow that they've offended God. It's some objective thing, a mental ascent. And that's where lip service comes in. And someone doesn't actually follow Jesus because they're not changed by God. And they're in a church maybe, they're going to a church maybe, feeling all religious, feeling good about themselves, because they've assented and they can be part of this thing, just like they're part of everything else in the world. On the board, we might say, if there's no sincerity in repenting, it's not repenting. It's just lip service to cover one's butt. As we see in the following scripture, the heart is affected by true repentance. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I don't know about you, but that's, those are heart issues, right? Brokenhearted. 
This isn't just some mental uh, game. Sometimes I struggle how to say it, but this is someone counting the, the cost of their own sin against God, for example, and coming to a conclusion. I am guilty. I am wretched. I can't save myself and I need help. Why is one brokenhearted and crushed in spirit? One reason only, they realize they've offended their God and Creator. God is looking for the humble, contrite heart, and those who remain in arrogance will not be saved. We were also reminded on Sunday, attrition is void of remorse. Contrition is tantamount to it. Again, as the Lord himself made clear in Luke 13, 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is why the Lord trained his apostles to go out and preach repentance. God has shown us so many different examples of this in the scriptures, in the Gospels, in Acts, and even in the letters to the churches. Uh, turn again to Mark 6, verse 7. Mark 6, verse 7. So the Lord started his ministry in Mark 1, saying, Repent and believe the gospel. And then in Mark 6, 7, we have him sending out the apostles to spread the good news. But what's part of the simplicity of the gospel? Part of it is repentance. He trained them to do this. Mark 6, 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Where, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you is arrogance unrepentedness, we might say. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. Do you think maybe the apostles also mentioned they should believe in Christ? Probably, right? But apparently that wasn't the only message. Because if men don't repent and don't see there's a problem, they're not going to honestly turn to Christ. They went out and preached that men should repent. So we're talking about the big picture and how the whole of Scripture tells us this story of conversion. And the Spirit gave us this again on Sunday from earlier in our series on conversion. Conversion implies repentant faith. That is to say that a saved person must be granted both repentance and saving faith from God. And this agrees with the scriptures as a whole. Acts 5.31 we saw, Acts 11.18, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, and James 2.14 through 20. This is what we see in plainly stated scripture. But a bad definition or a misunderstanding about what repentance is skews the gospel call. When even the apostles follow Jesus' way of leading with repentance. Turn again to James 2, verse 14. 
James 2.14. When God does this for someone that is humble, He does it all. But they have to be, for example, again, willing to repent, the biblical sense of repentance. James 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Ask yourself this question on this verse. Can God Almighty possibly give someone a faith that is dead? Is that even possible? God Almighty, because God gives faith, right? In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, even faith is not your own. It's a gift from God. So is it possible that God could possibly give a faith that's dead? Of course not, because he is life, isn't he? He's eternal life. Of course not. So if someone's faith is dead, what might you conclude? It's not faith from God. Maybe it's some human faith. Some works, basically. Some human works for earning salvation. Some self-reliance. But anyway, verse 17 again. Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James is talking about saving faith being a heartfelt faith. A faith given to the man who is repentant towards God. And he tells us a saved man with real faith would do good things as unto the Lord. It's the result of a good God at work in a humble man. God's goodness rubs off, so to speak. If God is perfectly good and he gives a man a part of himself, that man's going to have goodness in him, God's goodness in him. And it comes out. Unfortunately, many of today's contemporary Christian churches are peddling a false gospel. As Pastor said on Sunday, this false gospel is just attractive enough and it uses all the right language and bait so insincere so-called Christians can think they have a ticket to heaven in their pockets. By, we might say, obeying the religious motions. On the board again regarding false gospels, a gospel that accommodates man's flesh is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did the opposite of accommodating man's flesh. He called them out so much that they hated him. The religious people hated him for telling the truth. A gospel that doesn't call someone to the carpet like the Lord did many times is a watered-down gospel. It allows for man to be insincere and unaccountable, thinking he can fool God by staying for himself. 
thinking he can take Jesus in the back seat of the car just in case. And it's a false gospel. It's a false security that even churches are peddling. This is the Lord we're talking about. The Lord is the Lord. He's not going to take a position other than Lord. Just not. He can't be mocked. He calls men to repent, to call out his flesh as evil, his own flesh as evil, and to call out to him to be saved from depravity. That's the call to repent. It's like, you don't realize, you're hopeless. But repent is given as an invitation in many churches, not a real decision. So on the board, as we begin to close, we're talking about the danger in being religious. Mental assent alone to the things of God or Christ is a dangerous game of self-deception. And it's played in religions and in churches every day, even Christian churches, that don't stick to the Bible, that water it down, that make the gospel something it's not. Just because God is love, they compromise the truth. It's like having the grace without the truth. Who's Jesus? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. No emptiness in him. Full of both at the same time. And churches will preach the grace without the truth because they don't want to offend anybody. When Jesus offended everybody. Unless someone humbles himself before the Lord, he cannot be exalted by the Lord. And this includes salvation itself. On Sunday, the Spirit used an illustration of a dead man. And Pastor was giving us his best impression, which was pretty fun. But it got the point across. A dead man can do nothing whatsoever to help himself. Right? We in agreement? A dead man can't do anything good. Anything. He can't do anything. Therefore, it's only by the power of God's grace that a spiritually dead man can repent and believe. We all agree on that, I think. Even repentance and faith comes from God's grace. But some churches claim a person can stay dead and still be saved. In other words, there's zero change that God performs in their life. And without a man wanting to be saved from his dead condition, God will not save him. God will not raise him. A man must be willing to be raised by God. And that's the call to man for personal accountability. There's still that thing. Is your will, are you willing to surrender your will and turn to God, turn to Christ? There's that inescapable personal accountability. Man must be willing to be raised by God. He doesn't do anything himself. Man doesn't. God does it all, like raising rocks from the dead, making rocks into people. That's what God does for a man who's spiritually dead. But God will not violate anybody's free will. So we'll close with this point on the board. A willing heart means God's grace performs the miracle of giving eternal life to a spiritually dead man, granting him repentance and faith in Christ that saves him. And no one will snatch him out of the Lord's hands. John 10, 27 through 30.
We should know that one pretty well by now. Again, a willing heart. See, there's man's part. There's man's personal accountability. A willing heart means God's grace performs the miracle of giving eternal life to a spiritually dead man, granting him repentance and faith in Christ that saves him. And no one will snatch him out of the Lord's hands. If a man is willing, God causes him to repent and believe. Remember 1 Peter 1.3, I think it is? God causes man to be born again. If a man is willing, God causes him to repent and believe, and all the glory goes to God. So the gospel is so wonderfully simple. We must pray for man to not stumble over the simplicity of the gospel, to get out of his own way, the way of self, the arrogance of self, because that's the only thing standing in the way of receiving the simple, beautiful gift of God. It really is simple, but it's not easy for man. And so we continue to pray for all of our family and friends that we, you know, are in pain for, our hearts ache for. But guess what? God can do the impossible. Who can be saved? With God, all things are possible. So we never lose hope. Amen? All right, let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your grace and your truth. It's so wonderful altogether how it blends so perfectly without compromise but with total love and total grace. We thank you, Father, for the fact that your, sim your gospel is so simple. It's not complex in any way, shape, or form. It's as simple as the relationship between a father and a son. Father, help open our eyes, help us understand these things truly with our own convictions so that we can go out to a lost and dying world that needs this so desperately so we can have more brothers and sisters in your kingdom as you hope as well. We ask these things in Christ's precious name by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen.